Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. All right, welcome everyone. Thank you for uh, joining this webinar on student-athlete pay. My name is Stan Voiger with the American Enterprise. I am hosting and moderating today, uh, but we are joined by uh, three actual experts. Uh, Craig Garthwaite, uh, who joins us from Northwestern University's College School of Management. Michael McCann, who's a uh, professor at law at, of law at the University of New Hampshire, um, where he's also the director of the Sports and Entertainment Law Institute. Um, and um, uh, we uh, also have uh, Matt Mitten, who joins us uh, from uh, Marquette University, where I believe you're also the director of a sports uh, law institute, uh, a very relevant uh, area of expertise. I'm uh, excited uh, about our discussion today. We'll talk about the law and economics of the way in which student athletes are currently uh, compensated, and we'll, we'll touch on some uh, uh, reform proposals, but perhaps more uh, directly relevant, we'll talk about some legal proceedings that are, that are ongoing. And so to start off our conversation, I wanted to um, go first to Michael to, to tell us a bit about the status quo, about how uh, student athletes are currently uh, compensated for uh, their services, if you want to call it that, what restrictions are on how universities can compete for the best athletes, uh, uh, et cetera. Uh, what the idea is to behind combining uh, college education and and sports, right? Because ultimately, uh, of course, that is a fairly unique feature of the of the American system, where um, where the um, uh, athletes active in college sports also getting educated at the same time. And so, give can you give uh, the our audience sort of a, a sense of where things stand? What is habit? What is uh, legal restriction, uh, et cetera? Thank you. Sure. Well, thanks for having me, and thanks for uh, putting this panel together. It's a really great group. I'll be as concise as possible because there's a lot to untangle in this topic. Under current NCAA rules, athletes are limited in what they can receive from their school. There's something called a grant and aid, which covers up to all of tuition, room, books, board, and some other expenses that they're able to get reimbursed for. That would be a full scholarship. Many college athletes don't get a full scholarship, they get a partial scholarship. And as part of that, at least under at NCAA schools, they're restricted in what they can receive outside of that. So they can't be paid a wage for their labor. They can't currently be paid compensation from sneaker companies or apparel companies for endorsement deals. They can't hire agents. That this goes to the NCAA's model of amateurism, which is predicated on the idea that college athletes are amateurs and they're students first. And because of that, the NCAA and its members try to limit their exposure to monetary opportunities. Now, you asked about how do schools compete for high school recruits? Well, they do it in a lot of ways. Because they can't offer more than a full ride, essentially, they try to compete by building large stadiums, by hiring top name coaches who might get paid a lot of money, by building major training centers, that they can't pay the athlete himself or herself. So they sort of pay around the athlete. 
again, whether it's arenas, stadia, uh, coaches, other things that don't directly value the athlete, but might make the experience more attractive. And similarly, a track record of sending athletes to the pros would also be an attractive feature. Now, this system is currently under attack in a number of ways. One is that a handful of states have passed what are called name, image, and likeness statutes. And these statutes provide that beginning this summer in, in Florida and California is trying to move its up as well. And Nebraska, under the statute, they can actually already do this. Uh, the athlete is able to hire an agent that the school can't punish the student for hiring an agent and can sign endorsement deals, can sponsor camps, can do other things that provide value from their name, image, and likeness. And this stems in part from the Ed O'Bannon litigation, which centered on the use of college players in video games where they hadn't granted consent and their likeness appeared in video games with, again, without their consent and without paying them. And this, this, these statutes are going to run afoul of NCAA rules. The NCAA in January had been expected to recommend a series of proposals on how to address NIL, but the NCAA essentially punted. They argued that they had received a letter from the Justice Department, from an official of the Justice Department who left when the new administration came in and the Justice Department official had said, we're worried that if the NCAA limits how college athletes can gain from their name, image, and likeness, that that could create antitrust concerns because the NCAA consists of not only itself, but its conferences and its many member schools, about 1,200 members. So the NCAA said, well, we have to, we're a little bit concerned about that, so we don't want to make an announcement. Meanwhile, there's the possibility for federal legislation on name, image, and likeness. Members of both parties have introduced legislation that would provide effectively a federal right for name, image, and likeness. Now, what that would mean, would there be an antitrust exemption? Would it preempt state laws that differ? All of that would have to be sorted out. And there's also a Supreme Court case, which I, I don't know if you want me to talk about now, but it certainly connects to it. Yeah, so uh, first of all, I want to uh, applaud you for very consistently saying name, image, and likeness instead of the uh, NIL acronym that, that may throw off some of, the, uh, some of our less uh, expert viewers. And so uh, great job uh, there. I, um, I wanted to ask you before, uh, before turning to, to, to Matt, um, so mo obviously for most college athletes, these restrictions are likely not to be binding, right? Because the, you can, uh, between uh, things like scholarships and the other uh, types of compensation that are currently allowed, uh, surely most athletes in most sports at most schools are receiving the kind of remuneration that they would get even in a, if, even if there were no legal restrictions. Do, do, do you think that's a fair way to think about it? So that, that if there were no legal restrictions, well, I don't, we don't there's know. A of, there's I mean, a lot of sports that barely, that don't generate a ton yeah, of revenue. There's, sure. yeah. So, so, yeah. so, so I, I think that's important. That's important to keep in mind, I think, for, uh, for the, you know, for, for an assessment of the current system as it works, right? That, it, it, can I add two points? One is that there, it, an important law that I didn't mention would be Title IX, that there are restrictions that ensure equality in how male and female athletes are treated so a system where the football team gets paid $500,000 and the women's team 
doesn't get anything like that would, would raise a potential uh, concern there. But I agree with you setting that aside that sure, a lot of college athletes wouldn't necessarily get more than what they're getting from their school. Now they may be able to get money from sponsoring a camp and things like that. But I would, there are some athletes that you know, Trevor Lawrence, right. Who's going to be the number one pick in the NFL draft. If schools, if colleges could have competed for Trevor Lawrence by offering him what his market value is to those schools, he would presumably get a lot more from the school that he went with. Now, whether that's how far down the line you go with that. And I think that's gets to your question is, is uncertain. Excellent. So you mentioned there's a, there's a number of legal proposals um, and there's a, a Supreme court case. Uh, the Supreme court, th this is the, uh, the, the case that um, is, is mentioned in the, uh, in the event description. I think it's important for us to, to, to discuss it at some length so that people who want to know about it uh, can hear about it. So this is the case between the NCAA and, and, uh, and Alston. Can you briefly uh, give us a sense of what the, what the case is about, how, uh, dramatic the changes are that the uh, litigants are seeking, um, and uh, and then we can we can turn to Matt for some more uh, discussion of the the legal issues at stake. Sure. So the gist of the Alston case is that colleges and the NCAA agree on a set of restrictions as to how college athletes can be compensated. So the grant and aid that I referred to earlier, the idea that they that Notre Dame can't pay more than USC or Duke or whatever school you want to mention in terms of the full ride, the, the scholarship, other benefits. The Alston case argues that, that that's got it all wrong, that in a competitive marketplace, schools should compete by being able to offer benefits to college athletes that reflect that these are competing businesses, that those schools that I just mentioned they compete in all sorts of ways. They compete for faculty, they compete for grants, they compete for admissions, they compete for fundraising. Why is it that when it comes to student athletes, they can't compete? So the argument is that under section one of the Sherman Act, that they should act like competing businesses that they do elsewhere. And the case is currently before the United States Supreme Court. They're gonna have oral arguments on March 31st. The Ninth Circuit had ruled that there was an antitrust violation as to the grants and aid, but the remedy proposed, or I guess I should say mandated by the Ninth Circuit is fairly modest in that it doesn't create a free marketplace for college recruits to be able to be paid by their schools, that they stress that the benefits have to be tethered to education. So the fact that Trevor Lawrence is this amazing quarterback that can't be reflected in what he can be offered by his school or by schools vying for him. That whatever they offer has to be tethered to education. So for example, computer fees, computer labs and, and other expenses that college athletes and other students might incur, they can be uh, covered now by schools that schools can agree to exclude that, that they should have the right to offer. And I think it's an important point that it's really about saying Colleges can offer what they want as long as it's tethered to, to education. They're not compelled to offer more, but it, they're simply allowed to. And the Supreme Court will now decide uh, whether or not the Ninth Circuit got it right. And it's an interesting case because 
you know, what is, many have said the Supreme Court's conservative and it is conservative, but what does conservative actually mean here? Does conservative mean we should go back to the way things were, where the NCAA and its member schools were largely, uh, could, could largely avoid antitrust scrutiny as a result of the Board of Regent case back in the 1980s? That would be good for the NCAA, presumably, it's what they want. Or will the Supreme Court, which has some that I think are libertarian leaning, will they say, no, that conservative should mean schools should compete and they shouldn't, the, the, the value that they provide college athletes shouldn't be tethered to education. So it's a really interesting case. We'll obviously learn more when the oral argument occurs in March, but uh, I, I think it's a fascinating case, certainly a fascinating case to study. But, but it's, but it's I, th I think it's good for people to keep in mind that even if the Supreme Court uh, were to affirm, the remedy is relatively limited and wouldn't completely overthrow the, the system of, of amateurism as we know. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on what they decide, right? So I mean, maybe in dictum they say, you know, this system doesn't make a lot of sense. Or maybe they say, no, that the tether to education concept doesn't make sense. I mean, they could do a lot of things. I think the most likely scenario is that they either reverse the Ninth Circuit and rule for the NCAA, or they affirm it and the remedy continues to be fairly limited. But, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, it's hard to, uh, to, sure. to predict what the Supreme Court's going to do. So let's go, let's, uh, I want to go to, to, to Matt to talk about some of the, the uh, legal issues. But first, let me Ask Craig. So uh, Michael has talked a bit about how schools compete. Do you do you want to uh, give us some uh, some more you know numbers or more economic background on how schools compete through spending on coaches and uh, and facilities? I believe yeah. this is something you have studied. Yeah, I think, I think Mike uh, touched on this as well. But you know, we we have a system where we can't directly pay the athletes uh, money to come there to, to a school. But we spend money on all types of things. And our research shows sort of as the football team and the basketball team make more money, the money gets transferred to lots of things. It gets transferred to other sports, which we can talk about later. But it also gets transferred to coaches' salaries, particularly football coaches' salaries, and to those facilities. And so you end up with coaches making, you know, anywhere upwards of $7, 9000000 million. You end up with uh, athletic facilities like at Clemson, right, where Trevor Lawrence plays, they have a laser tag facility at their training center. At UCF, they have a lazy river, right? So we're spending money and we're talking about schools sort of competing for talent, but it's never actually going to the players. And so in some ways we want, you know, it to be amateur for the players, but professional for everyone else involved, taking home millions of dollars from them. Uh, thanks. So uh, Ma Matthew, um, I, I think, um, uh, I think Michael has given us a good introduction to the sort of the, the broader issues at stake. Would you want to elaborate a bit on the uh, the case that's uh, headed to the Supreme Court, and maybe focus in particular on the on sort of the antitrust issues and the the broader implications that that may have? I know that uh, uh, this is something you, I believe, just taught your students about or are about to teach the students uh, um, about. And thank you very much. Yeah, I, I think it's important to take a close look at how we got where we are today. And, you know, the, the title of this webinar is, you know, how should student athletes be compensated? But I'd frame the issue differently. I, I think it's really who should determine how student athletes uh, should be compensated for their, for their playing services. So if we look at the description that I think you probably drafted, Stan, you know, oh, yeah. 
high level sports integrated into US institutions of higher education to an extent unparalleled in peer countries. It's no, no doubt college sports is a unique product. Um, and then you go on to say intercollegiate men's basketball and football in particular generate significant revenue from ticket sales and broadcasting rights. Um, that's certainly true. I mean, it's, it's a separate brand, no doubt about it. And then the description says at the same time, student athlete compensation is severely limited. Well, I, I think what's important to you know, recognize here is there's almost half a million uh, male and female NCAA intercollegiate athletes and football and men's basketball players is a relatively small percentage of them, but all of them have an opportunity to derive, you know, really very substantial educational benefits, both in terms of, you know, athletically, a small number are going to go professionally, but certainly on the academic side and lifetime skills. And, you know, this, even though, as um, Michael mentioned, yeah, this case might look like just involving a small issue, it actually involves really a very big issue. And the issue is, is actually, um, you know, whether intercollegiate sports should be effectively professionalized through the use of federal antitrust law on a case-by-case -case, um, basis, or should they be professionalized as a policy matter? And I think it's really important not to conflate those two issues. So I think, you know, again, the important issue is who should determine the, the compensation student athletes get for their playing services. So if we take a historical look, we can go all the way back to 1906 when the NCAA was founded. They've got as part of their core mission to create an amateur brand of sports, to distinguish it from professional sports. And in 1984, the, the Board of Regents decision, um, Justice Stevens writing for the majority, pretty clearly said NCAA should, quote, be given ample latitude to maintain the revered tradition of amateurism in college sports. Um, I, I think it's also important to remember Justice White's dissent. And he was a former college football player at Colorado, an outstanding player. I think he finished second in the Heisman Trophy voting. And he starts out his dissent by noting that some of the NCAA's activities viewed in isolation kind of looks like a professional sports league. Um, but these are nonprofit uh, educational institutions and intercollegiate athletics is just part of their overall, uh, what they do. I mean, the, it's pretty clear they want this to be something that is, you know, an extracurricular activity, part of, you know, their overall educational mission. And as the Seventh Circuit pointed out, um, you know, they're different because Colleges and universities certainly exist, and they did exist before they started offering um, intercollegiate sports. So if we look particularly since the 1984 Board of Regents decision, and again, there are 1,100 NCAA member schools, more than 100 athletic conferences, they relied on Board of Regents to define the unique characteristics of college sports, which includes the, you've got to be a full-time student athlete, and you also um, have to be amateur. And they do this through a federated internal governance structure. So you got divisions one, two, and three. Division three, for example, there's no athletic um, scholarships. So up until 2016, all of the federal appellate courts that had considered the issue um, agreed that the NCAA's 
product defining rules valid as a matter of law. So we had the fifth, the third, the sixth, and the seventh. Um, and they said they are pro-competitive and reasonably necessary for production of this very unique and popular product. Um, it's not consumers that are here saying, hey, you know, this isn't what we wanted. Then if we look at American Needle, I think that was 2010, you know, that was, I think, the most recent Supreme Court case looking at the application of antitrust law to sports. That was uh, professional sports. You know, what the NCAA produces is a product. Um, yeah, sorry, could, could you, just for the education of our audience, could you briefly explain what American Needle was about? Yeah, that was a case that dealt with, you know, essentially could um, the member clubs of a professional league, uh, they're separately owned and operated, but they're economically interdependent. Um, are their rules decisions here? It would have been uh, NFL properties, which was a wholly owned subsidiary of the clubs. It, is that subject to uh, section one of the Sherman Act? And the court said, yeah, because there's not a complete unity of economic interest. So a little bit different issue here because there's no question that when the NCAA schools agree among themselves, their conduct is subject to challenge under um, section one. But the American Needle case kind of picked right up where Board of Regents left off. They, they recognized that um, sports leagues are unique. Um, certain restrictions, um, agreements uh, are essential if the product's gonna be available at all. And there's language, Justice Stevens again, you know, wrote the majority opinion, which was unanimous in American Needle. He pretty strongly suggested that whatever is necessary for that particular product that a sports league produces uh, is likely to survive the flexible rule of reason. And, you know, I think this is a case where, you know, as Michael mentioned in the NCAA would like nothing better than to see the um, Supreme Court rely on what's known as the quick look rule of reason and uphold uh, the NCAA's limits here. It involves on uh, in-kind and catch educational benefits that further what it believes are its pro-competitive objectives of promoting amateurism and integrating uh, student athletes into its uh, member universities' academic uh, communities. So that's what kind of brings us up to here. And, you know, it's probably a good um, stopping point. And then we can move on from there. Excellent. So I want to uh, I want to turn briefly to to Craig. So we've we've talked to, and and I, I appreciate you highlighting just the the sheer number of uh, of, of people involved in in a collegiate athletics. We we've talked a bit about the revenue generated and you know how it is used to to pay for facilities, coaches. Um, uh, Craig, can you give us a sense of the the scale? Because really. In a sense, I guess men's basketball and football are are outliers. Can you talk a bit about how uh, how they stand apart from from other sports? Um, and also, so if the revenue doesn't go to the players, where does it go? Yeah. Um, so thank you. I, I appreciate Matt the sort of history um, there because I think it's important to understand sort of what college football or college sports was when a lot of these rules were created and what modern revenue sports are today. Um, and so the first thing I realize is that um, I think it's true. We have a ton of schools that do some version of intercollegiate athletics. 
right? And then we're going to division one, two, three. Then within division one, right, we really have a set of five conferences now, which are referred to as the power five conferences. And the amount of money generated in those schools makes it sort of quaint to think of them as some, you know, school-based extracurricular activity. These are modern powerhouses that we're talking about that are generating billions of dollars in revenue a year, where coaches are taking home millions of dollars a year, uh, where facilities are being spent for tens of billions of dollars a year. And we still want to view the athletes as somehow being um, these, these student athletes only, not part of this massive commercial enterprise. And a lot of that's resulted from really the growth in the value of the media rights that are associated with those sports. Um, the leagues, the, the, the various conferences, like the Big Ten Network, of which my school and my alma, alma mater school, Michigan, are a part, right? They all uh, formed their own television network called the Big Ten Network, and that generated a bunch of money. Then they sold off the rest of their rights to other to, for, for sports to other entities like ESPN, and that's just generating all of this money. And so, where does that money go then? If it's not going to the players, I would note that if if you look at the professional leagues players would be taking home 50% of the revenue that they took home. And we estimate that in football, for example, players are taking home about 7% of the revenue. So where does it go? Well, it goes to coaches and other facilities, as we said, but it also goes to what are referred to um, as the non-revenue sports, right? These are the other sports um, in the athletic department. Non-revenue is not really a fair terminology, right? There's sort of certainly non, those are true nonprofits because they lose money every year. They generate some, some revenue, but it's much less than what we needed to, support their activities, it goes there. And those are split among non-revenue sports that are played by men and non-revenue sports that are played uh, by women. And this sort of, that's an important distinction to Michael's point about Title IX, that you have to think about how you spend money in that. The thing that our study sort of looked at, in addition to sort of where the money went, was who are the athletes that play these various sports? And what we see is that the current system in the NCAA where the money is generated primarily by men's football and basketball, right, and is then distributed to other sports, means we are taking money from sports that are predominantly played by athletes that are from lower income families and are more likely to be minorities, and giving it to athletes who are primarily from higher income families and are more likely to be white. And so as we start to think about sort of the equity around here, right? And I think Title IX and spending across men's and women's sports is a question about society's preferences on equity by gender. We also want to think about equity on other dimensions, right? Like minority status, like income. Um, and I think it just becomes a much more complicated feature where right now what we have is the money is generated within the athletic department in the Power Five Conference. Very little money comes from the home school, and then it's distributed or redistributed within the athletic department in an exceptionally regressive way from an, from an economic standpoint. And we might want to think that there could be different rules for Power Five Conferences where the money is generated by the athletes than for the other even Division One athletes where a lot of the money is coming from the general fund, and then therefore a lot of these inequities don't exist. Matt, what do you think is that, does that sound to you like a workable setup where, you know, the power five is basically singled out and different rules would, would apply? Does that seem like a road you, you, you think should be considered? Well, you know, possibly for, for football, but you'd have to have the exact same rules apply to all the power five conferences. One of the things that the plaintiffs tried to do in both 
the O'Bannon and Alston cases say, hey, there shouldn't be any limits on compensation at the national level established by the NCAA. It should be each conference competing among itself. And that's just not a workable system. If we compare it a little bit to the you know, professional sports model, you, you can't have that. I mean, if you've got the, the leagues, all except baseball that have salary caps, they're all on the same footing. You can't have the richest conference, you know, whether it's the Big Ten or the, uh, the SEC, they can offer more than, you know, any of the others from a particular period. But if you step you'd, back- You'd end up with a, with a system more similar to European soccer, right? Where different national leagues uh, have very different revenue uh, levels. And so in the, when they face off in the Champions League, you know, Spanish and English teams are, are usually dominant, right? And so that's what you're trying to avoid here. Yeah, and you even have it within conferences. Um, and, you know, I went to Ohio State as an undergrad. So it's kind of, you, you've got, you know, Ohio State, Michigan, they have a lot bigger athletic budgets than, than some of the others. But, you know, it wouldn't work for basketball. Look, look at the basketball tournament um, that the NCAA um, puts on every year. And it's not just the member schools of the Power Five conferences. And why, and why is that so popular? You know, the, you know, how many number 12 seats have beaten number fives? We even had a number 16 seat do that. So you've got, it's got to be nationally across the board. And there is, I think, an important difference here between recognizing that, yes, there's, you know, commercialized nature of college sports. And why is that? It's because football and particularly men's basketball are very popular with consumers. And then, as Craig mentions, it's the distributional, the equitable fairness things. You know, that might be a matter where, where Congress has to step in and resolve that because courts applying federal antitrust law are supposed to look at only economic issues. And it, it's interesting here, the relevant market is defined as well. It's just the revenue, net revenue generating sports. They don't consider it any broader college sports as a whole, where you could take into account the cross subsidization and perhaps get a very different result. Courts might take an even more deferential hands-off approach. But, you know, the, the, the whole question I think that is raised by Alston is how much of a role, if any, should federal judges applying antitrust law on a case-by-case -case basis have in defining the essential product here? And this is an input market restraint, which I think is quite important to keep in mind, not an output market restraint, like in Board of Regents involved, you know, NCAA just selling, um, you know, all the television rights to its member schools games. And it's not consumers bringing the suit. And I, I seem to recall back at least when I, Taking antitrust in law school, purpose of antitrust law is to make sure consumers get the benefits uh, of competition. And here they've got separate products. Yeah, Stand I think that, that, that principle, I think, is under attack from a number of, yeah. of sides on the, in, the, in the technology sector, too, right? Which is interesting to see. But Craig, go ahead. Yeah, so I mean, Matt, I understand you're, you, you're worried about sort of big schools spending more than other schools and a lack of competitive balance. But effectively, that's what we have now. Mm -hmm. But if you, if you look at college football, you've got a set of dominant schools. They tend to be higher income schools. Now higher income isn't just enough, right? My alma mater has had trouble beating your alma mater for about 20 years now, despite having roughly similar budgets, maybe different ethics, but different similar budgets. Um, but what we, the real problem we get into is that it becomes this self-perpetuating cycle where if you can get into the college football playoffs, you get more people to come to your school. They, they want the athletic success. They want the facilities you can have. There's no 
smaller school that's able to compete now because there's this even playing field on paying the athletes, even in college basketball, like, yes, the 12 seed beats the five seed with some sort of weird irregularity, right? But when it gets down to the sweet 16 and the elite eight, it's primarily the blue bloods. And if it's not, it's not because, you know, there were a bunch of athletes that could have gone to one of the blue bloods and instead went to a lower ranked team, right? There are athletes that have stayed around for four years and they put together a team and they'd probably be able to do that even if they were being paid. And so I, I understand this point about competitive balance, but it seems like we, we don't have competitive balance now because schools can attract athletes spending money in all these other ways. So we neither have the competitive balance, nor do we have the equity of paying the people who are putting out a lot of the effort. And when it comes to football, I think putting out effort that really risks their long-term health, despite the fact that the money is all flowing to coaches and to other sports, coaches which predominantly tend to be richer, whiter uh, uh, individuals. And so I, I just think that this idea that we, we can't pay because all the conferences need to be the same ignores sort of where we are now uh, in a reality, both in a competitive and economic sense. So Matt, I want to uh, follow up on that with you. And then I have a question from the audience for, for Michael that I need to remember. But let's first go back to Matt. So when the, when the courts look at this situation, so you say, so under, under anti-trust uh, law, obviously they're, you know, restrictions are usually frowned upon, but are traded off against uh, pro-competitive uh, purposes that are sought through the, uh, what I guess in this case is a joint venture. Um, can, you, can you talk about how this works procedurally and to what extent the courts look at this uh, in a substantive way, right? Whether the court itself goes and says, look, we think that on balance, these restrictions uh, help the help competition in what I guess would be the market for for sports on television uh, 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 to, 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 in a certain level. Can you, can you walk us through how this works? Because I I think and it was clear I think in your previous comment there's a concern of course that that judges are going to micromanage rules and restrictions. Uh, as they engage in weighing that, that trade-off. Can you, for people who aren't familiar with uh, antitrust cases, can you talk us through how, how that process works and maybe also how it's worked its way through the, the courts in, uh, in Alston and some of the previous cases? Yeah, so if we, you know, the claim here is that, you know, there's no question NCAA member schools are economic competitors for player services. And it's not just football and basketball players. It's, it's really, you know, across the board. Um, and in some ways, you know, it might be more appropriate to, to view the NCAA as a seller of educational services. It's like, hey, come here and, you know, you get a full cost of attendance scholarship. It's, you know, nothing, you know, you don't have to pay anything out of pocket for that. So in most other industries, if economic competitors, like let's say law firms, greet among themselves, this is going to be the maximum that we're going to offer for you know, first-year associates services, it would be per se illegal. All you have to do is prove the agreement, court would enjoin it, uh, award mandatory treble damages. Um, but here the courts have consistently recognized that this is a unique industry, so the flexible rule of reason applies. So it's up to the plaintiffs first to show, hey, this, these rules, these NCAA rules, limiting the economic value that 
student athletes currently can receive from colleges and universities to full cost of attendance, that's anti-competitive. Then the burden shifts to show uh, for the NCAA to show how is it pro-competitive? And the justifications that have been accepted here is maintaining amateurism, whether you view that as a separate pro-competitive economic objective or a very important component of the brand differentiation uh, part of it. And then the uh, academic side of it. And up to there, we're okay. But then rather, then the next part is that, well, okay, does, is there a less restrictive alternative that could achieve one or both of those pro-competitive objectives? And that's where we've run into some problems. You know, Judge Wilkin, if we go back to the um, O'Bannon case, she said, well, this is price fixing. Student, you know, student athletes can't receive anything for their name, image, and likeness rights. So she basically said, well, the NCAA, if they're going to have a rule at the national level, they can't limit it to, you know, prevent member schools, if they choose to, from offering up to $5,000 per year per student athlete for that. Well, you, you can't, you know, the, the, the marketplace should determine that, but you can't have a judge determining, well, here's what I think the market price ought to be. Or the same thing really happened in the Alston case, where it was like, well, we don't think there could, you know, you have to permit schools, whatever they want to provide for the in-kind educational benefits. But for the cash ones, we think a cap, which looks a lot like, by the way, you know, it's just a little bit more, I guess, taking into account inflation went from 5,000 up to almost 6,000 there. And then it's like, well, what's going to be next? Well, what's going to be, you know, the next rule that, that gets challenged? So, so what happens is the product, the NCAA's product of intercollegiate athletics starts getting defined by individual judges. And that part isn't correct. What, what, what Craig is saying is any of the, you know, these distributional non-economic issues, their Congress might need to step in and say, here's what we think is appropriate, all things considered, because Congress can consider things that courts applying antitrust law cannot, and then perhaps provide a limited antitrust exemption, but make sure that these important policies that Congress wants satisfied are, are carried out. In some sense, along the lines of Congress uh, passing Title IX, of course, which has similar, exactly. you know, it takes similar uh, equity considerations. But I guess in, in, in the legal context, we would call, call policy considerations uh, in, in, into account. Uh, Michael, I, I have a question for you from uh, Paul Morell, uh, who, and this goes back to the to the to the Austin case specifically. Can you give some specific exa specific examples of the type of benefits that schools uh, can provide to student athletes under the Ninth Circuit's uh, uh, decision that they that they could not provide previously? Just for for clarification. Sure. So computer expenses would be one that there would be a re reimbursement for a computer technology fee that some schools provide. That now that fee can be either waived or reimbursed. There will also be changes on what college athletes can do after their eligibility expires, that they would be able to pursue internships that could have previously been problematic if they accepted the internship while they were still college athletes. So those, those would be a couple of examples. But just to go uh, to build on what, what both Craig and Matt have been talking about, 
I, I think, you know, it's interesting that we're talking about distributional questions because the College Athletes Bill of Rights that Senator Cory Booker has introduced really goes to the heart of that, that his proposal is a much more transformative idea than merely name, image, and likeness, or in the context of the Austin case, the grant and aid. And I, I think, you know, in a way, because the system has been so static, while the circumstances around it have changed so dramatically, and Craig really uh, illuminated in terms of revenue, more transformative ideas have been introduced in Congress. And we could see, if they gain political traction, pretty significant changes to college sports. And so can you, uh, Michael, can you, can you uh, summarize for us what, what that proposal would do? It would do a lot of things. So on one hand, it would create a penalty, we create a, a presidentially assigned board that would in many ways act like the NCAA. It would have oversight over schools. It would be able to apply a penalty scheme where schools could lose up to 20% of revenue if they violate the statute. It would create incentives in place for coaches to adhere to allowing college athletes to gain from their name, image, and likeness. And if they violate that, they could be suspended from from being coaches. It also creates a fund for injured athletes. And that, that I think is an important feature where for five years after they've been a college athlete, they would be eligible for compensation should they have injuries. And there are all sorts of questions as to how that fund would be administered, administrated, excuse me, and funded. So those are some aspects of it. So the, the, the injuries issue is, is, is important, right? Because you could, you could think of a situation where, look, uh, athletes play, uh, play a sport in college and then they, become, then they become pros, but there are obviously reasonable numbers of cases where that career is cut short, right? And so even some of the very best athletes never actually make it to that professional stage. Are there, have there been uh, ideas to maybe let athletes sign contracts earlier on in their, in their career so that they can start uh, so that they can basically, right? Because the, the, part of the issue is that the, the future salaries are uncertain, right? And so you, what you could do is you could let people receive the certainty equivalent of those uncertain future salaries early on, right? So you could have uh, uh, football players when they graduate from high school, you could say, okay, well, you're going to go to college, but afterwards you, uh, here, here's a contract you sign, you go to an NFL team, but we, you, you have some amount of money secured. Has that ever been considered? Because I, I feel like a lot of the injustice that people see in the current system is driven by that, right? That there's, you have basically a waiting period during which all things may happen that will, will undermine your ultimate compensation. So I don't think exactly as you, you framed it, Stan, that, that, that the idea that they could sign sort of a professional services contract while they're still in college, but they are able to buy insurance. So that's one way in terms of the injury issue. And secondly, at least in the NHL with hockey, players can be drafted and then go to college and they leave, they go to the NHL when they're ready, when the team says we're off, we're off, we'll offer you a contract. And if the terms are good, very different with the NFL and NBA that, that we've talked about with men's basketball and football, where that's the main driver of revenue in the NCAA in both of those leagues. Now those leagues are separate. They, they negotiate, eligibility rules with the union. I mean, it's, it's a very different framework from college sports. And of course, in basketball, players can skip uh, altogether. They of can, they can, 
So they have to be in the NBA 19 years old plus one year out of high school. Previously, they were able to go directly from high school, but they could skip college basketball and go play in Australia or play in Israel or, or Spain or, or play in Europe, Spain. Exactly. So whereas in football, it's a much more constrained market where college football really serves as a de facto minor league for the NFL. And for the NFL, of course, it's beneficial because they're not paying for it, right? And the, so you the, could think of workarounds that work, at least for the top athletes, right? You would still end up with uh, the, sort of the lar re reasonably large number of college athletes who do not end up going pro, but who do play in these, in these revenue, in, these, in, the, in the significant revenue sports. Yes, but it would require a big change in amateurism rules that they could, yeah, they could sure. essentially sign a contract before they can, for their eligibility. But, but there's no question that that idea, uh, I think many would say is logical. And you know, would it betray the foundation of amateurism? I guess it just depends on how you define amateurism. Yeah, and, and it just seems like, but one, one way to address at least some of people's concern is to, to, to remove the most egregious situations from the, from the realms of possible, right? So players that get injured or really the very best players and, and the like. So Craig, I know you, you, uh, you have some views on, uh, you have views on some of these reform proposals, uh, uh, in particular, the, the, the Booker proposal, I know you, uh, you, you know, you, I know you've thought about, uh, can you, how would you, Obviously, as an economist, the, the way you would like for the world to work is you design how everything works, and then the people uh, follow your, uh, your 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 design. What? How would you design this world if you could? Well, I guess what I what I'd like to do is instead of a lot of the proposals are about putting taking one set of external regulations for this market and replacing it with another. At times, even includes your set of regulations for the market. Um, I have so to my, say, I was a little skeptical. I'm a little skeptical about this presidential board that's going to. Yeah. Uh, gonna uh, and, and Michael, if I'm right, the way the, the Booker and Blumenthal bill works is that they would be share, taking all the money in all of Division One, gathering it together at revenue, and then sharing it back out among all the players. So you would take, you know, the, the punter from, you know, Northern Iowa or, you know, pick pick some uh, non-Power 5 conference, he's going to get the same payout as a starting quarterback for Ohio State University. And I, I just think that, that that doesn't make a lot of sense if what we're trying to do is match the economic contribution of the athlete to the return that they're getting. Um, but it does so, address, uh, Craig, sorry, but it yeah. does address some of the equity concerns you mentioned earlier, right? Because the money would stay within the sport. You don't have this subsidy that goes from, uh, you know, sports that are relative with many players that are relatively low income and much less likely to be white, you won't no longer have that money going to sports that, that are disproportionately white and higher. Uh, yeah. So I, I don't know the, we only did our, uh, the economic breakdown for the power five conferences. I see, right? um, and so we, we don't have that for us. Like, we're concentrating where the, where the business model sort of fits there. Um, I, I would suspect based on some things we looked at in the data that that probably is true, but I don't, it would, it would reduce the inequity, I guess, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, but another option would be things like, you know, and, and, and I think, Stan, you know, it would be surprising to say this, like allowing the athletes to unionize like their professional counterparts do. And then having some negotiations that happens and having that be, be, maybe be at the conference level. I know, I know Matt, you don't uh, want us to be at the conference level, but, you know, the, the idea that the Horizon League and the Big Ten and the SEC Right, are going to have you know should have exactly the same opportunities. Maybe it doesn't reflect the economic reality that we see. Um, and so, if we did allow that unionization um, and the contracts, we we just sort of assume that it looks like um, what the professional contracts look like in terms of the distribution of revenue. Athletes would earn a lot of money, 
Um, they would, they, you know, and they would earn well more than the cost of attendance. We could hold all of the revenue sport athletes harmless. Now that would leave a question of what happens to the non-revenue sports in that. And to Michael's point, there's a question about what happens with Title IX. We did a thought exercise though, that if we, let's imagine we took all of the women's sports spending at 2006 levels. This is still, you know, modern college athletics, very, you know, the, the opportunity to participate is very high. And we just let that grow by inflation over time. So we didn't actually let it sort of continue to get above average returns from the other sports. If you look at that amount of spending that would happen versus what's actually happening, you get about $76,000 per revenue sport athlete per year. So we could still fund a meaningful amount of athletic activity, right, in non-revenue sports and allow the revenue sport athletes to enjoy some of the revenue that they generate. Um, I just think it requires us to be willing to say that amateurism is a bit of a facade. And I, I know we say that sort of it's a key part of the, the brand differentiation. I, I do agree that there's something to the brand differentiation aspect, but I, I mean, I'm a huge college sports fan. I've, all my friends are college sports fans. None of us think that this is an amateur endeavor, right? All of us think that players are probably getting paid to some degree under the table, or we at least recognize the hypocrisy of a coach making $9 million a year like Davo Swinney and then talking about the sanctity of amateurism. Um, and so I don't, I don't know how much, the, the, how much of the pro-competitive argument is actually true, that the, that, the, that the sport does better commercially because the athletes are amateurs. Uh, Matt, Matt, I wanna give you a chance to give your view too. I know you, you've emphasized throughout uh, the idea that really Congress should step in to, to deal with these equity issues and not, not judges. But so what, uh, how, basically same, same question I asked Craig, how would, what, 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 what would your ideal setup be? And, and why do you think Craig's setup is extraordinarily bad if you, if you believe so? Well, I, I think one of the things is what it, it sounds like Craig is proposing is basically let's professionalize college sports. So we've got, you know, clearly, you know, NCAA football and basketball, the product is going to be, hesitate to use the word inferior, but it will be, you know, more similar to like uh, Major League Baseball, AAA baseball, if you like. It would, you know, it would be a, a, a different brand of product. It would be converting it, uh, you know, professionalizing college sports, making it, you know, minor league um albeit high level variants of the NFL and NBA. And then I guess the, the, the question is, well, why, if we're going to do that, why even require that um, those who are playing football and basketball for big 10 schools or anyone else, why do they even have to be student athletes then? I mean, then totally we're just basically saying, you know what, the whole objective of this is just to um, pay student athletes, make sure they get their cut of the pie, so to speak. Uh, which some would say that they're not getting now. Although I think, you know, let, let's not diminish the, the really significant opportunity to, add, to earn an education, any of the Big Ten schools. I mean, if, you, if you're getting that, uh, even the best college athletes um, probably don't even make an NFL or NBA roster for, for even one year. Uh, hardly any of them play long enough uh, that they're going to, you know, earn enough money in order to support themselves and their family um, 
you know, sort of relative forward. to the to the just the college premium uh, in in salary that they get by uh, by getting a university education. That's what you're saying. Yeah, so the, the, yeah, exactly. The additional salary that they will derive from their college education uh, far, far exceeds the compensation they would receive uh, if they were getting paid, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah I, I think a lot of them are probably, you know, the value of that now is more than, um, but again, we would be just totally throwing out what has been a very popular, different brand of sports competition. And I think what would happen is, schools would just say, okay, we'll offer the, you know, maybe football, men's basketball, a couple other sports, the minimum necessary for Title IX, and we're not even going to offer the other ones, which doesn't really seem to make much sense, and if we're wor really worried about the uh, distributive fairness and some of the political and social issues, Congress can come in with a very narrow law. I mean, the, 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 the Booker-Blumenthal one is way too broad. There, there's way too much um, in there. I think on, on NIL rights, I think pretty clearly there needs to be one national uniform rule. Uh, there's no real need for states to get involved in it. And that would, you know, I think accomplish a number of objectives. I mean, even though that would be pay based, not pay, but um, the, the revenues one would get from licensing name, image, and likeness rights um, could be quite substantial for some athletes. Maybe they'll stay in school a little bit longer, um, get their um, degrees, but I, I think things are moving really in a good positive direction. If we look from where we were at in 1984 uh, with the Board of Regents up until now. And so one thing I yeah, think guys, 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 so the, the, the thought experiment that you're doing, both of you, either implicitly or explicitly is what would it look like if the if, if college football basically became sort of a, a second division of the NFL, right? Would that be a better product or not? Right, I think that is, and and the NFL would be could set up a second division if they wanted to, right? They they could have a league for younger players. And then the question, so to to some extent, the pro competitive argument is that the current product then uh, NCAA produces is much better than uh, that kind of you know second second division of the NFL would be. I think that's one way to think about it. Craig, sorry, go ahead. I, I guess I guess I would. Uh, so we don't know if that's actually true. I think there's. You know, maybe in the beginning when we started, that's true, but we're at an equilibrium now where people care about their college teams. And so, you know, that, that is the world we're in and we're not necessarily going to say move off that equilibrium. I guess I would buy this entire argument about the need to keep uh, amateur, the amateur status is about purely about pro-competitive. If the NCA placed any limits on the salaries that they paid their own staff, that they paid athletic administrators, that they paid college coaches, if there were any restrictions on the pay that was going to anyone except those athletes, I, I think it would be better. And I don't, I don't think we want to talk about the fact that we're professionalizing college sports. I think we're admitting that this is effectively a professional endeavor at this point, that what we demand of revenue sport athletes in terms of the amount of time and the sacrifice that they put in, that often means, by the way, that they can't truly take advantage of the educational opportunities because it conflicts with the responsibilities that they have to keep their scholarship and keep their place on the team. Right. We, we should just admit that it's professional or we should, you know, make it amateur all the way down. Right. No more nine million dollar salaries. No more multi-million dollar packages for athletic administrators. Uh, no more Mark Emmert taking home million dollars a year or millions of dollars a year. If that, if that was the case, then I would buy this. We're really trying to keep the sanctity of amateurism. But it seems like a lot of what's happened with the NCAA is they want to keep it amateur.
and then enjoy all of the excess rents themselves or a disproportionate share of the excess rents themselves. Excellent. We have about uh, three minutes uh, left, and I think we can use those three minutes to answer a question from the audience. Uh, I will ask all three of you to respond to the question quickly. Uh, what is the panel's view of the Knight Commission's recent recommendations to separate uh, FBS football from the NCAA in order to unify the sport under one governing structure and keep all other sports in the NCAA uh, with basketball as the organizing sport rather than football? So separating the FBS from the NCAA. Craig, what do you think? I think it's a good first step. I would go even further and then separate the Power Five out from the rest of the FBS. Matt, what do you think? You know, I'm kind of skeptical of it because then you're going to have, you know, well, how are you going to structure your athletic department? It's like, okay, we have football over here and then we've got all the other sports here. Um, you know, I'd have to know much more about it, but my initial reaction is uh, very skeptical. And Michael? I think the concept makes some sense. The mechanics of it, I, I would want to know a lot more about. And I also, I, I would want to know, is that really the right delineation of college sports? It seems as if there are a lot of moving pieces to this. And just doing that one maneuver in a, in a vacuum, I'm not sure that would be the most beneficial approach. In most athletic departments, it is football over here and the rest of the sports over there. So it's a, we're already doing that. They have their own training staff, their own facilities, everything. But it's not, I mean, UNH, it's hockey, right? So there, there, are, there are some exceptions, but I- You guys I, wouldn't be an FBS, would you? No. Yeah, so. I see. Well, well the other skepticism thing- skepticism about this proposal. Uh, Matt, last word for you. Yeah, I just, you know, uh, Craig, I, I, I think we don't, gotta be careful not to conflate commercialism, commercialized nature of college sports with professionalizing it. I'd be important distinctions. And the other thing, you know, I've got a lot of non-revenue generating sport athletes, male and female in my sports law classes. And you talk to any of them and I think they work just as hard with their sport as the football players or, or men's basketball players. I'm, I'm sure they do, but we don't pay people based on how hard they work. We pay them on the value they create. All right, on that, on that uh, labor theory of, of value related <laughs> discussion, uh, thank you all very much for participating. I hope this has been enlightening uh, for our audience. It certainly has been for me. Uh, and thank you very much for, for, for joining. Have a thank day. you. Thanks. Thank you. Bye now. Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.